top of my don't you dare f*** this up list. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome, a sequel episode because it's the sequel to the last two episodes. I'm Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil the T. Yes, I'm here. Hopefully, with us is Peter, who is having major Wi-Fi issues, so he may not be here the whole episode. But let's hope he is. It's a squeakquel. Shut up. Oh, <laughs> I don't want you on the episode anymore. <laughs> Just for that, karma is going to kick me right in the dick and the call's going to drop out. <laughs> well, you deserve it. If you guys want to do something with dicks, you can always go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free power O-ring, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. That said, the last two episodes we looked at what were so-called the worst sequels of all time, although Cecil and I refuted a whole bunch of those. Let's look at good sequels. Now, I want to throw this out there right away, at least for my part. I can't speak for you guys, but I have a feeling you'll agree. Some of the sequels I'm going to talk about tonight are sequels to amazing movies. So I'm not trying to say, oh, one is better than the other. For instance, like Alien and Aliens, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. A sequel can be just as good as the original, but a lot of people think if you say, oh, the sequel is better, it's a great sequel, they automatically assume that means the first film wasn't. So I just want to throw that out there. Doesn't always mean that the first film or an earlier film is bad. What is your favorite sequel? I wanted to go for something that wasn't as obvious, and I'm going to go with uh, Giver 2. Because that one, because you were just saying, doesn't always mean that it's better or worse or whatever. But in this case, it's so much better. Giver 2 Dark Hero is such a vast improvement on the first film, which is actually, it's great. That one's a really fun little uh, Stuart Gordon film with, you know, effects by, St- by Screaming Mad George and stuff like that. But the Steve Wang sequel uh, with the same effects team with a far better choreo- fight choreography team with uh, David Solid Snake Hater as uh, as the Giver character. Fight scenes are amazing. It's it's gruesomely violent. It feels more like the uh, like the original manga and, and the cartoon. That's sort of a, a go to sequel for me. It, not even as far as a really good follow up, but one that is an example that the second film in uh, well, I guess it's not really a series. There's only two, but a sequel can be better, and that one, in my opinion, is. And anybody that hasn't seen that one or either film, I would I would recommend both of them because they're they're fantastic little. Uh, lesser-known sci-fi anime live-action adaptations. Uh, if you think Dragon Ball Evolution is the only uh, live-action anime movie and uh, decided to, to put yourself off of those entirely, uh, maybe check out the, the Giver movies because they're they're much better than like that weird uh, Gary Daniels Fist of the North Star. That's one, yeah, I had on my list too. The Giver Dark Hero is just so good. And I like, the first one's fun, but it's silly, it's kind of cartoony. The second one, it really, they push the dark 
aspect of it. I mean, it's dark like the anime. And the scene where he jumps off the cliff and turns into the Giver is just awesome. Like, that's That so still good. holds up. Like, effects-wise, yeah. it still looks so f***ing good. I don't know how they did it. Like, it's it's that freaking good. It's just, it's awesome. Mm. I mean, the fights are great. It's really, really good. Everything about it is just great. It's uh, it's really a shame that uh, it, it just doesn't get the attention that it deserves, because that is just a, a phenomenal yeah. sequel. For mm. me, what I'm going to go with... Uh, uh, I am going to, because I know there's a lot of ones that were, like, I, I know ones that we're going to talk about, so I'm going to bring up Phantasm 2. I think Phantasm 2, like, I love the original. The original was one of the first, like, scary movies I ever saw. It holds a very dear place in my heart. They had a better budget for the sequel, and it shows. Like, it, it was all, universal. Yeah, it's universal. So it was all on the screen. Yeah. Like, there are some movies where you look at it and you're like, like, I just saw the movie Rings, and I'm like, how did this cost $35 million? It looks <laughs> like a, a like, low-budget direct-to-video uh, or direct-to-video-on-demand-like movie. It wasn't good at all. I don't know what they spent the money on. And uh, Phantasm 2, it was all on the screen. The effects were amazing. They still hold up. The creativity was there. Like, Don Coscarelli really took a lot of his concepts and fleshed them out so so much better, uh, made the different types of uh, spheres, made the tall man even more intimidating, just uh, really pushed the, a lot of the uh, the history and the story. It was just so amazing, and it was depressing because it's so good, did not do well, so when he came back to do the third one, they had like a fraction of the budget. The third one was independent, though. The third one the was third not a one, studio film. I know, but what I'm saying is that seeing the drop-off, like, if you were to sit down and watch the series, it's like, it is a major, like, peak and then valley. Like, I li and I like three and four. They, they, I mean, as far as uh, what they're able to do, it really, really takes a nosedive. And it's such a shame because they had set up so much cool stuff and then they weren't able to really do it. And then it kind of petered out with five, which is, uh, which five I is like. Five is garbage. Five is a, like five is a fan a film. Certain, I like to a certain aspect, but it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's almost in name only kind of thing. But, uh, but anyway, but two is, is phenomenal. Two is, is just an amazing film. Yeah, I'll agree with you on Phantasm 2, and I know this is the outsider opinion, but I like James LeGrobe as Mike better than Michael Baldwin. Yeah, James LaCrosse did a really good job. I don't know... Um... Uh, Don Coscarelli didn't like him. Obviously, he wanted Michael Baldwin back in that role, but this being universal in a studio film, they wanted, you know, a, a quarter-name actor. Hell, it was almost Brad Pitt, but he, he turned it down to do Thelma oh, and Louise, which was probably a good career move, but that was almost yeah. Brad Pitt in that role. I thought James LaGrode did a great job, and yet constantly... All you hear about, I mean, you watch that Phantasmagoria documentary and Coscarelli is very open about how he did not want James LeGrow in that part. And it's like, hmm. but dude, you got to realize, I get it. Michael Baldwin's your friend. Not a good actor, though. Gotta see that by this point. <laughs> I agree. Phantasm Two is my favorite of the of that franchise as well. I'm gonna go with uh, I've got a, I've got a tie here, and one of them is gonna be a weird one. Aliens is arguably arguably my favorite sci-fi sequel ever. Not Dawn of the Dead. I think Day of the Dead is actually the strongest film in that entire franchise. I know that's an outsider opinion too. Absolutely. Day is a great film. No, that's not shitting on Dawn at all. I think Dawn is an amazing film. I think Night. Honestly, I don't think that franchise had a stinker until you get to you know Diary and Survival. 
in all honesty, even Land of the Dead, like uh, I loved it, Land of the Dead. Land uh, of the Dead was great. Land of the Dead is a really cool concept, and it fits with uh, with night, dawn, day, and then land. You have the where the world is just in total upheaval at that point, and it's, they're kind of trying to build up another structure with the, the big corporate tower thing. But yeah, day is a perfect in between to that. You know, you have people living underground. Um, I mean, I could talk about Day of the Dead. I think for like endlessly for hours. Uh, to me, that's that is really one of the best and most underappreciated films that I think Romero has done and there's so much interesting social satire to it it almost gets to a point where with its uh black humor and a lot of social satire and just its vibe it almost feels a bit like a paul verhoeven film i'm running this monkey farm now frankenstein and i want to know what the you're doing with my time (laughs) what's that dude's name um joe joe pilato it makes that film absolutely him He's so good. He makes that movie entirely. I don't care if he's meant to be the villain, because to me, I don't think anybody is actually good or bad in Day of the Dead. I think everybody's kind of an asshole, and they've gotten stir-crazy by that point. The scientist who's feeding the corpses... Dr. Frankenstein. Uh, of, yeah, Dr. Frankenstein is feeding the corpses of, uh, of Joe Pilat, of, um, Captain Rhodes' men. You know, he's not, uh, he's trying to make it seem like, oh, the zombies are, are becoming better. They're not as violent as they used to be, but they've made no progress because all he's doing is just feeding them people anyway. Like, they're, they're not doing anything that's actually moving them forward. And you can actually see why Captain Rhodes would be pissed off about that. Like, you see where every character is coming from. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure anybody as like a commanding officer would be pretty goddamn riled up if they found out that the scientist feeding the the bodies of his like fallen comrades and shit to the to the zombies the very people that they're like fighting to to stay alive from i i gotta i gotta disagree with you on one thing though i think laurie is actually a good character i think she's the only truly good the jamaican guy maybe a little bit but laurie yeah. is she she's actually the only character who is not somewhat of a jerk i mean even the even the helicopter pilot's a drunken asshole look here woman i'm short on manpower i won't have you going around doping up any of my men without orders from me is that clear yes sir you sir there's that but then i also got to go aliens i think aliens it's such a different film than alien it was the only way you properly could have followed alien up because i know james cameron had to fight because fox essentially wanted the whole you know just kind of remake the the first movie but with a new cast and we'll call it a sequel they were a very very skeptical of him making an action movie out of their claustrophobic haunted house in space movie aliens is just as good it it does what a sequel should do it expands the Mm -hmm. universe and takes the characters to new places Joe Bob Briggs is very vocal about, I mean, he's joking because obviously the Joe Bob character is a satire. One of the reasons he says Halloween 3 failed was it broke the formula. Friday the 13th just keeps making the same movie over and over and over again with different teenagers. He goes, Halloween wanted to do something different. Well, they paid the price, didn't they? I think the the thing with, with Aliens, though, is that you needed somebody 
as talented as James Cameron to be able to pull that off because there are a lot of yeah. uh, directors that will take a movie that is one thing. They'll take a, an atmospheric horror movie or an, you know, and they want to almost do a, a genre swap and they just don't have the talent to pull it off. And he is such a good director that he's able to make that work. He was able to pull in the right creative team, the right DOP, the, you know, he knew all the people that were necessary to make that happen. And he made, an incredible movie. He made just a, a one of the best sequels ever. The thing is, whereas a lot of movies, uh, you're comparing them, you're like, well, you know, this one did this better, this did this better. Alien and Aliens are so different that you almost can't even compare them because they're they're like it's it's pretty much a horror movie versus like an action movie with horror elements to it. So they're yeah. just that different. So you, you can't really, you know, I mean, you can, you can draw some comparisons, but you can't do like a direct comparison because they're mm -hmm. so different. So Aliens then, is, is really one of those perfect sequels and it complements the original. Like it's not better or worse. It's a perfect follow up as, uh, as Josh. Josh mentioned, like, you're, you're, and you can take the claustrophobic alien and make it into an action movie. All you do, and it's something Cameron did that was very simple, you add more aliens. You just make more of them, and you add in space marines. And then mm -hmm. you have even more of a claustrophobic effect, because there's even more of these things running around, and they're coming out of the walls. And it's just, uh, when you have James Cameron doing something that has both a horror and an action element, it really works, because this guy also made the first Terminator, which in a way is also a sci-fi horror film. It's not just a, a futuristic story about a time-traveling assassin and the soldier that has to protect the mother who's going to give birth to a savior of the human race. It's also a phone book serial killer thriller movie. Like, it, it also kind of works as like a body count slasher noir atmosphere just as much as it works as an as like a hard-boiled guns blazing explosion action movie. So James Cameron is is like was the perfect guy to come in and, and take the, the helm and bring us a proper sequel to, to Ridley Scott's original masterpiece. After what you just said, at any if you're watching the first Terminator for the first time, say in 1984, you half expect Tom Berenger to start doing karate to try and protect his hookers. New York doll! Dun, dun, dun. You're so pretty. <laughs> but, okay, you, you, you brought up Terminator. Now, yeah. this one is where I also kind of break. I don't know where I fall on this one. I think Terminator is the better film than Terminator 2 as, as a beginning, middle, and end, as a character arc. On the other hand, Terminator 2 is arguably one of the best action movies ever made. So I also really, agreed. I'm not sure which one I would pick. Terminator's the better film, but Terminator 2 is the more fun film. Terminator 2 was also revolutionary. Like, Terminator 2, uh, for better or for worse, really was the movie that made CGI a thing. Cameron incorporated it with uh, The Abyss, but they weren't quite there yet. They had it was the, only uh, a minute and 34 seconds in The Abyss total. And it took, I think, some ungodly amount of render time. To get that <laughs> minute. It took like 37 years worth of rendering time in order to get oh, that God. minute and a half. Like something absolutely atrocious, you know, like because the computers just <laughs> could not handle it at the time. But they had learned from that and were able to do... Uh, 
uh, in Terminator 2 and really yeah. take that and make the, uh, the, the transforming, uh, you know, the T-1000, the liquid metal. Yeah. And oh my Which God. It still looks so, so goddamn cool. goddamn it's, good. Yeah, okay. Okay, here's my question. How do 1991 CGI effects still look good today, but early 2000 CGI effects don't? I have an answer. That's because there's more CGI in movies now, whereas they used it very carefully in early 90s movies. Like, look, just look at Jurassic Park. The dinosaurs in that look a billion times better than the ones in uh, the newest one that just came out. And it's because we see so much more of the dinosaurs. Just like in Terminator 2, the liquid metal effects and all the other, like, little Terminator effects and the, the little CGI that they snuck in, it shows up just the right amount of time, which is why I think on... On a technical level, Terminator 2 is one of the most perfect films ever made. When it comes to special effects, when it comes to pacing, when it comes to action beats, when it comes to soundtrack, Brad Fiedel's score in that movie is just amazing. The, the color uh, the color palette of the film itself, the action sequences and how intense and, and awesome and, and just uh, high impact they are. Yeah, the, the morphing scenes of the T-1000, everything is used to a perfect level. Nothing is overdone. And everything is used exactly to the point that it needs to be used. I personally think Terminator 1 is a better movie. Its effects are dated, but I prefer it. It's a great little neo-noir, cyberpunk, time travel, almost horror slasher kind of movie. Arnold is super intimidating in it, and Michael Bean is a badass, and Linda Hamilton is a great arc. But Terminator 2, objectively speaking, when it comes to technical level, when it comes to special effects, when it comes to standing the test of time, big effects blockbuster film, I personally don't think, even to this day, action movies that come out, big blockbusters that claim to be the, the next this or the next that, Terminator 2 still takes the cake as one of the greatest, on a technical standpoint, action films ever fucking made. To go back to the thing that... Uh, the reason I believe it was Gene, I believe it was John Carpenter who had the answer to this. It was either John Carpenter or one of the guys who worked on the thing. I can't recall where I heard it, but the reason why CG is so lackluster these days, as opposed to back in the day when you would see, see it and it would be impressive. I mean, there was some bad CG, but there was a lot of stuff that just looks so much better than it does now. And it's because that movies are so rushed nowadays they used to get like yeah. a year year and a half of pre-production and that's where they would do all their storyboarding and their working and they would really organize everything and then that way with stuff like the cg with like jurassic park they would be able to incorporate okay well here's what we're going to do we're going to blend the uh the models with the computer aspects we're going to do this mm. we're going to do that we're going to make it all seamless and now they rush full headlong into it without a proper pre-production time. They get into the film and they shoot everything on a green screen. And then they just are like, okay, they, they give it to the CG, you know, the, uh, the computer animators and they don't a lot of times give them proper cycle. They don't give them enough time. Yeah. So there's so many times where we'll get movies where it's released before the final render so you'll get like yeah. this escape where from la some of the escape worst cgi of the 90s because they rushed oh, it they they cut the uh they cut, they cut the almost five months off their five post-production out of post-production or even just look at the uh, Star Wars prequels. Like, if you've ever watched the making of for those, it's George Lucas sitting in a chair pointing at the directors, just directing from a chair with a blue screen, and it's just actors standing around or walking, and then everything else is added into post, which is why everything looks so fake. I had found...
found out there was a movie, uh, the sound, uh, sound of thunder. They filmed so much of that movie on a, on a green screen or blue screen. What happened was after they got done filming, they went to pass it off to, uh, the, the computer guys and the, they were doing all the computer animation and then the company went bankrupt. So they wanted to try oh. to recoup some of their money. So they were releasing like first and second renders on that. Like, except, were, oh, except, except that one. I know this is off topic, but on that one, go watch the trailer for A Sound of Thunder and then the movie. They finished the effects in the trailer. The trailer, these CGI effects look great. Those well, same yeah. scenes in the movie look like ass. Well, it's like the, it's like what, the, oh, what happened with the Hulk. They, yeah, the CG know, was better in the trailer. The CG was better in the trailer because they had more time. They are like, because what happened was they gave it, you know, they, they knew these were the scenes that they were going to put for the trailer. So they gave the guys more time to put it and they put it in the trailer and it looked great. And then everybody went to see the movie and we're like, wait a minute. Why'd that look like shit? But we just saw it months ago and it looked good. But same thing with uh, with Sound oh. of Thunder. I think they had their their budget was like eighty million, and it got by the time they were done filming, and they started working. They, the budget was cut down to thirty million. But by that point, they had oh, already man. used almost everything, and so they were using just whatever uh, you know whatever animations they had, and the majority of them were were like one step above wireframe. Exactly. <laughs> okay. One last thing about Sound of Thunder before we move on. That also has one of the worst blue screen moments, green screen moments, whatever, I've ever seen. The when scene where they're in future Chicago and Edward <laughs> Burns and his niece are walking and it is so obvious they are walking in place and it's the background that's moving. Oh. It looked oh, so man. laughable. I went, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> it, it is. That's one it. of the greatest, most unintentionally funny moments I've ever seen. It's, it is so bad. Like I could, I remember watching it and I was all like, cause I like Edward Burns and I thought, oh, it's cool. They're going to do this. And I remember seeing that and I was like, oh no. Cause that's really early in yeah, the Yeah. It's real early in the beginning. That's real like, early in the oh, film. And it's like, it's like no. they're clearly walking in place. It's, it's so bad. If you haven't seen it, you really, I'm sure it's probably on YouTube or something. It's so bad. <laughs> I, I'm going to go to another one here. I really, I, I, we haven't discussed this, so I don't know where you guys are going to fall. I know I'm in a vast minority here, and I'm talking about the original franchise, not the remakes. I like Fright Night 2 better than Fright Night. I think it's more fun, has better villains, has better actors, has better effects, and flows better as a movie, has a better sense of humor. It's not taking anything away from Fright Night. I like Fright Night 2 better, and most people hate that movie. I sort of like them both equally for different reasons. Like, I, I do like Fright Night 2 a lot for, you know, you got more, more monsters, uh, it's got kind of a different pace to it, it's got a bit of a different sense of humor. It's, to me, it's sort of the same way Evil Dead 1 and Evil Dead 2 are. Like, they're kind of different movies and I enjoy them for, uh, I like Evil Dead merits. 2 better myself. Yeah. Well, for me, I, I don't like either one better. To me, it's sort of a, they're, they're great for different, uh, different reasons. Um, it's the same type of movie, but handled a bit differently. Like I like the more of the buildup that the first Fright Night has, but Fright Night Two has a little bit more shit going on in it. So I, I feel like they're they're both fun for their own reasons. I don't I don't know if I could uh, if I could actually pick pick a favorite between those two, but I I do really enjoy Fright Night Two for sure. I like Fright Night Two, but I just I do think that the first one is better. Like it's and again, but Tracy case, Lynn, I know, but this is a case of where I'm I'm not saying that much like how we say that the first that if the second one is better it doesn't mean the first one is bad. Even though I like the first one better, I'm not saying that the second one is bad. The second one is a very good follow up. The second one is a 
fun sequel. It's got Tracy Lind in it, who I adore. I am always, I am just partial to the first one. Uh, I would have preferred if, if, uh, Tracy Lind would have been in the first one instead of, uh, oh God, uh, the chicken. <laughs> Amanda Beers. <laughs> Amanda, Amanda Beers. I'm trying, I was trying to think of what Marcy was Marcy Rhodes. Mar- Marcy Darcy. Instead of Marcy Darcy, I would have, <laughs> uh, then, then one, it would be no question that one was the, the better one. But, uh, I do, I do like one and uh, I think that two is, uh, is a lot of fun, but uh, it's just not as good to me as the first one was. Along those same lines, and, and maybe I'm kind of going off of our topic here because it isn't technically a sequel, but in reality it is. Speaking of Tracy Lind, as much as I like class in 1984, I like class in 1999 better. In 1992, there were 543,767 violent incidents in American high schools. In some cities, the areas around these schools were beginning to fall under the control of violent youth gangs. By 1997, the number of violent incidents had tripled. Gangs had taken control of large sections of these cities. Some schools were shut down. The year is 1999. The gang-controlled areas have become known as free fire zones. Kennedy High is located in the middle of a free fire zone. The police will not enter. There is no law. The Department of Education of Defense has been formed to reopen the schools and control the gangs. Yeah, Class of 1999 is so much... It's it's not a true sequel, it's more of a spiritual sequel, that's why I'm kind of like, eh, but, you you know, Class of 1999, I liked better. uh, you Mm -hmm. You can sort of pretend that it's like in the same universe and it's like 15, 20 years later, because, I mean, even in the first one, they already had, like, metal detectors for the schools, and you had, like, gangs that were ruling everything. So it was kind of – it does work as a spiritual sequel. And it, it, to me, it's the same thing with, uh, uh, again, with Fright Night 1 and Fright Night 2. I really like them both for different reasons. Class of 1984 is an amazing commentary uh, kind of movie, the the rising of, of street violence, uh, the rising of, of And of Michael J. Fox. And an introduction of, is it, was that his first movie? That was his first movie, yeah. That movie is, is just awesome in its own right. It's a perfect uh, social commentary movie. As I said, rise of violence in schools, which is something that's very even relatable today. Like, that is that is happening. A lot more bullying is going on, a lot more violence in schools. You have all these school shootings happening. Class of 1999, though, as a cyberpunk kind of movie, literally cyberpunk, where you, it's futuristic and you have punks. So you have uh, you have cyborgs and punks, uh, cyborg teachers that can do rapid fire spanking. And uh, <laughs> Pam Greer was it. so hot in that too. Oh, Pam Greer was awesome in that movie. She was easily uh, actually, honestly, all of the uh, cyborg teachers were great. I love the uh, the old man spanky teacher. I love the the gym coach Patrick Kilpatrick. Yeah, oh god, he's awesome. He's got the, like, uh, the, the rocket launcher arm and Pam Greer. He's got the flamethrower. And the teacher, the other teacher, the older guy who looks like, uh, Bernie Sanders just looks like, uh, I don't even know if he's got like a special power. He has like a vice, a vice grip hand or something, doesn't he? Or he's just like super strong. Like I forget exactly what his, uh, well, they all are kind of. The absolute best part of class of 1999 is how to, by today's standards, how dated it is. Not the effects or anything. One line of dialogue. These completely autonomous, <laughs> self-thinking, and self-aware androids. One million megabytes. 
Do you guys realize I have flash drives bigger than that? Flash drives that you can get from like the dollar store have more. more <laughs> exactly. On it. I bet when they made that in 1990, one million megabytes sounded like a huge number. Well, yeah, that was sure back in the day. Just, just when... like it uh, was the Johnny Johnny Mnemonic factor is um, to this day's standard. Johnny Mnemonic is just a typical five dollar USB. Yeah, didn't he? I think it was like a he had like a one gig hard drive in his brain or something. Yeah. <laughs> But it was like, but again, at the time, oh, wow, that's so amazing. But I mean, with, yeah, with Class of 99 especially, huge. oh, God, I mean, I think most computers had like a 10 megabyte hard drive, you know? So yeah. a million megabytes, oh, my God, they didn't even have a word for that yet. Well, okay, l- let's go on to another weird one. And I don't know where you guys are going to fall. Now, this is, again, not an official sequel, although this is legally not an official sequel. Diodato's follow-up to Cannibal Holocaust, 1985's Cut and Run. I don't like it better than Cannibal Holocaust, but I love Cut and Run. Civilization has introduced countless evils to this mysterious jungle, but not terror. Because here, terror was born. And here, terror will live. As long as outsiders dare to enter the savage wilderness, two reporters stumble into a troubled paradise and wind up running for their lives. We can't just sit here, Mark. We'd be asking for it. Because beneath the sheer beauty lies a world of utter madness. Today's headlines erupt in a timeless thriller. Your journey ends here. Forever. Cut and run. It's the one story you won't see on the 6 o'clock news. That is just an awesome... 80s movie in general you have uh fantastic claudio simonetti music it's super sleazy it's super 80s it has a decapitation scene that in my opinion rivals the one in exterminator and that dude pulled in half by his nuts like a wishbone like cut and run is just a perfect sleazy 80s movie i I don't like it better than cannibal holocaust either because it barely even feels like the same type of cannibal movie but it's just a perfect 80s movie it it almost feels like what the miami vice movie should have been yeah it's it's very much a miami-based movie but diodato says on the dvd it's in all for all intents and purposes is the real sequel to cannibal holocaust but because he doesn't own the rights to cannibal holocaust it legally isn't well yeah i mean it works in that there are cannibals and all that stuff but it uh, and it deals with the media and and all that you can see he's going over the same ground but a lot has changed since 1980 Mm. to 1985 so he kind of updated I, i guess what he needed to say the ending is fantastic too with the the dude that like uh the, the villain of the film that gets like decapitated on live TV and they're trying to stop the broadcast. It's Richard Lynch. That's, yeah, it's awesome. That's maybe his best role, I think, ever. And that's such a, I remember watching the movie for the first time and I, I knew it was coming. I knew it was going to, something 
fucked up was going to happen, but the way that they handle it in the film, it's every time I watch it, it's a genuinely shocking scene. And the decapitation itself, like you almost think that really is Richard Lynch getting his head cut off. Like it looks. No, see, I, I'll disagree with you on that. To me, the the shocking scene in that movie is when Michael Berryman and the Aborigines, okay, they're down in South America, but whatever their version of Aborigines would be, when they're raiding that cocaine village near the beginning, yeah, and they take and they take that lady oh and they're God. they're spearing her through the knees and through her shoulder blades and they start raping her that yeah. scene is just brutal and when uh when barry man just like he just starts lopping uh lopping their heads off while they're on the the deck and stuff like that like it's a savage savage f***ing scene that the whole movie is it's to me again i will label it as the quintessential sleazy gory 80s movie it's it's the one that i would suggest anybody that just like i, I want to watch something uh violent and weird and, and very 80s and synthy this weekend and I'll, I'll immediately say cut and run it's got cocaine it's got cannibals it's got synth it's got neon it's got drug dealers it's got vietnam jackets did i mention cannibals i think i did it's a perfect 80s movie. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, though. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is a, a very solid follow-up. I, I, I disagree with this. Say Lethal Weapon 2 is the best film in that franchise. I don't understand why. I think the first Lethal Weapon is easily the best film in that franchise. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't dislike 2. I like 2 a lot. But uh, I think that one is just it's it's more of a powerhouse movie because, yeah, like, I mean, there's so much action and comedy, but there are a lot of like really emotional scenes with uh, with Mel Gibson. Oh, God, yeah. And I mean, you really, really feel like this guy is on the edge, like he is going to either kill himself or he's going to go out in a blaze of glory. And in the second yeah. one, like, I really do enjoy it. Like, I think it's great, but it's a little more one liner friendly and it's it's a, a little, little bit more action more movie. of an action movie. And it's still really good, but uh one is just by far the the better the better movie. I mean, Mr. Joshua is the freaking villain and that that oh, end sequence that Busey. end fight is just No Backup. It, it's just it's so good. So it's such an amazingly choreographed fight, and it was one of I think it was one of the first movies, at least of that time, to like utilize uh mixed martial arts, like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. That was one of the first times you actually saw like an a, a fucking arm bar in a movie, which is pretty revolutionary for, for like in a movie that came out at that time. It was like a different form of, of martial arts and fighting style. Cause usually you'd see like karate or, you know, taekwondo or boxing, but this one showed like grappling which is something you would see a lot more, especially, you know, with UFC becoming a thing and uh, MMA taking hold of uh, of culture and, and sports and stuff like that. that. That wasn't something you saw much of in 70s and 80s movies, except for maybe, like, occasionally, you know, Bruce Lee would, would bust out an R, but who remembers that? Like, that, it's something that shows up randomly at that time, um, and I think it was very... Uh, that that fight alone was incredibly revolutionary. When it comes to Lethal Weapon 2, though, I like it. The only one I don't don't like in that franchise is three. I felt like that was the weakest Seriously? one. Seriously? Uh, two and four. Four is terrible. Four isn't terrible. Oh, four is great. Will me to you, Riggs. Will me to you. Jet Li is awesome. Jet Li, in my opinion, rivals uh, Mr. Joshua. He was just as good of a villain. Because you know what? He was actually sympathetic because he, in, in the... 
in the lowdown of the whole thing, like he was just trying to protect his own family. Um, mm-hmm. you, you actually felt for, for Jet Li's character and he was a total badass. Like he was like uh, kicking both Danny Glover and Mel Gibson's ass. Like they were nothing. That, that fight scene when, um, I forget what's, what's happening. I think like the building is like flooding or something, but, uh, it's been a while since I've seen four, but four is a really underrated sequel and it's much better than, than three. And I actually prefer it over two to me when it comes to Lethal Weapon, one and four are the strongest ones in that franchise. I do have to say Lethal Weapon 2 does have one of my favorite comedy moments in the franchise, though. When Danny Glover's at the South Mm. African Embassy. Mr. Jones? Right. Sit down, please. Well, what can I do for you today? Okay, I have this uh, problem, this very delicate matter. I have a friend of mine who wants to immigrate to South Africa. Yes, of course. I can certainly help him do that. Oh, sure. Uh, But I want you to talk him out of it. Talk him out of it? Uh, Yeah. Whatever for? Well, uh, you see, this is such a bad time for him to go to South Africa. I mean, with all the trouble and everything, okay? Look, why don't you ask your friend to come back later in the week? We can sit down. No, he's here. He's here. He's here? Yeah, he's here now. Where? Alphonse! Alphonse! How you doing? I think there must be some mistake. Say what? Sir, listen to your friend here. He knows what he's talking about. I don't think you really want to go to South Africa. Why not? Because you're black. You are. He is. Of course I'm black. That's why I want to go to South Africa. To join up with my oppressed brothers, to take up the struggle against the tyranny of the racist, fascist, white minority regime. Fascist white regime. One man, one vote. One man, one vote. Free South Africa, you dumb son of a bitch. You dumb son of a bitch. Look, I've heard just about as much as I want to. Hey, I'm going to ask. Hey, 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 just look here. Hey, what's happening here? Hey, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Take it. Oh, <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, but sure. <laughs> I, I just, I think that's one of the best comedy moments in that franchise, personally. Free Africa now, you dumb son of a bitch. Yeah, you dumb Revolt! son of a bitch. Uh, one of the things that makes Jet Li so much of a badass in 4, and it's so subtle, is there's a scene, I'm pretty sure it's when he shows up, uh, like, for like either the first or second time in the film. Mel Gibson has the gun with the laser sight on it, and he points it at his chest. Jet Li looks at it, and like, tries to like, brush it off of his shirt. Like, like it's, what is that? Ugh. Like, like he's annoyed. Yeah, that's awesome. By the laser, and it's so like, yeah. wh- this dude's pointing a gun at you, and you're just like, uh, yeah. Like, it's so he's good. Like, flicking, uh, like, he's flicking a bug off of his shirt or something. It's, yeah. It's great. Jet it's Li's, so like, subtle. It's his great. physical presence in that movie is is astounding how badass Jet Li is in that movie. And, and it it's a shame we, we really – we don't see him as much anymore except where, for when he gets together with Stallone to do an Expendables movie. Like, I think Jet Li carries himself, and he proved it in Lethal Weapon 4, and I don't get why he didn't stay a, a bigger name. Like, to me, that's why – one and four are the best is because they have the best villains. You have Mr. Joshua, Gary Busey in one, and you have Jet Li just kicking all kinds of ass and being, being fucking awesome in four. Speaking of Danny Glover, I like Predator 2, the best film in that franchise. I think Predator 2 is easily the best film. It, Predator 2 does what a sequel is supposed to do. 
it expands the universe and goes in a completely different direction. And I think Predator yeah. 2, in a strange way, its biggest failing is that it's a Predator movie. No, there are moments where I'm getting into work. this. It would absolutely still work as a, as just like a crime film. As, as a like near a future crime film. Yeah, yeah, Colombians. Yeah, Peter, there are, there are parts in that where they're getting into the whole drug war angle, and I'm so into that, and the Predator actually just kind of wrecks the, the, the cool drug war story I'm into. <laughs> yeah, it's the opposite of the, the first movie, where in the first one, you're, you're kind of waiting for the Predator to start showing up. Like, it's kind of a generic, big guns, the jungle shooting stuff, and it's like, okay, when, when's the fucking alien gonna show up? And when the Predator shows up, that's, to me, in my opinion, when the movie really does get awesome, uh, it becomes this, uh, alien horror survival movie where, you know, the, the Marines are getting picked off one by one and they're setting up traps. It's the suspense angle in the, the first Predator that, that makes it work. And the fight at the end where Arnold is, uh, camouflaging himself and it's like a more of a, more of a battle of wits than an actual battle of, uh, physical strength. Whereas Predator 2, the whole movie, in my opinion, is, is incredibly strong. It's the storyline itself, which was actually based a lot in fact, like those, those drug wars were really happening play at the time and the Colombians and the Jamaicans just cutting each other down with uh, automatic weapons and, and the police being almost uh, helpless at that time. Cause I think the, the economy was really shit at that time. Like they just didn't have enough uh, police, which is why a lot of uh, vigilantes were, were coming out of the woodwork and a, a lot of, a lot of crime was on the rise at the time. So Predator 2 utilized that perfectly to create this kind of very believable future. It almost has, it's almost in the same, other than like some of the weird looking guns, uh, it's a future you could buy, much like the one in uh, RoboCop, where it's like what you would actually be more realistic in a in a future world would be the an economic collapse and a rise in crime, which really is is happening and something that's more more believable in corporations uh, running everything. It's not so much in Predator Two, but it's more of a, a rise in in crime and, and vigilante justice and police being kind of kind of helpless, which is such a cool thing to thrust a Predator into because it's so much different. From the first movie, you have you have the the predator really going on a big game hunt because he's got two gangs that are kicking the shit out of the police. Technically, three gangs if you count the police. Yeah, so it's like that almost makes the the predator in two seem like even more of a badass because honestly, he's I guess technically. Isn't it like in the novelization it says something that the predators are actually she's or something or the no no, no. um the, the the no the the predator in the first movie was female the predator in the second one was a young inexperienced male yes so if if you look at it in a way predator in predator two comes across as more of a badass because of what that particular predator is thrusting itself into is this massive drug war in this already crime ridden city. And just as you said, if you, even if you were to take all of the predator out of it, it makes for a hell of an awesome police versus crime drug war kind of movie. Like it still works because you've, you've got an awesome, awesome cast already. You'd have got, you've got uh, Danny Glover. You've got, uh, Maria Conchita Alonso, I think is her name. You've got Bill Paxton. You've got this awesome, you got Gary Busey again is an awesome, uh, corporate dickhead villain. It, it works perfectly even without a predator in it. The predator is just that, that ice. A cake of uh of sci-fi horror awesomeness a fucking alien <laughs> i love it when he says that lions the tigers the bears oh my oh my but predator 2 was hated predator 2 you go read reviews at the time it was just destroyed by critics were like yeah. wow there's no future in this franchise if they're gonna go in this wow. direction and this film was just 
hated. I mean, it was hated to the point where I love Predators. But Robert Rodriguez is very open, and he said, we're not going to make the same mistake Predator 2 did. We're sticking to the formula. So even Robert Rodriguez was like, Predator 2 is not a real Predator movie. Yet his uh, his Predators is nowhere near as good as uh, Predator 2 was. I like Predators, but it's like it's the third best Predator movie, and that obviously is the weakest one. To me, it goes Predator 2, Predator 1, and Predators. Yeah, I'm the same way. I love Predators 2, or Predator 2. I I have gotten, like, not into arguments. Predator 2 is better than Predator 1, and you get, like, the, what? No, it is for Predator but 1. But Arnold, but, yeah. but uh, I, I don't have time to bleed. And it's like, what, one-liners and Arnold Schwarzenegger? You, like, I love Arnie. Predator 2 is better. Danny Glover's a better actor. There's better action. It has a better, uh, I forget who, it's a better who story. Directed, who, who directed Predator 2? The guy who did, uh, he did, he also did a movie called Judgment Night. Stephen Hobbs is, uh, is a great director. He did one of my favorite, uh, sort of lesser known little Emilio Estevez, uh, survival action movies, uh, Judgment Night, which also has a very Predator 2 vibe to it. And what I love about Predator 2, and it's something that Stephen Hopkins brings to the table, is he's a huge, uh, comic book fan. He, he wants to give his movies a sort of, pulpy pulp novel pulp magazine comic book kind of vibe and you can see that both in predator 2 and also in judgment night he utilizes night shots really really well utilizes shadow and color extremely well he he makes it look sort of the way being outside at night would really look but with a stylized style to the angles and the shadows he actually made uh, okay because peter part of that movie is a heat wave he made that movie feel humid and uncomfortable didn't he feels scorching it's uh it's right up there with how hot you feel when you're watching something like falling down it has that vibe where you're watching you're watching in the middle of winter and you'll actually kind of feel a little warmer watching it because it it's it looks excruciatingly hot and i don't know if it was uh the lens he used obviously they were really i think shooting it was really a good it was really a good dp probably well yeah it had sweating a lot too so yeah but it looked perfect though like it had um there was it just had it had the right amount of soft focus i think to the to the film to where it really did look hot like i mean you can put sweat on people and you know uh you, you can sprinkle some water on their face and make them look like they're sweating but they're really sweating because it's actually really hot and i think the the color palette used for the movie and just what they i don't know if they did it in post or on camera but something it had to also be to be done with the the lens used in the film because it's not only shot on clearly a hot had to be a hot heat wave in la but it had to also be the the use of cameras the use of lenses the use of color which uh stephen hopkins is just amazing at doing i think he's a real uh underrated director when it comes to that and i think he did a better job than uh mctiernan did in, in predator one because that one is also meant to be really hot that's taking place in a jungle and it really was hot when they filmed that the actors were dying of uh near near heat stroke but it doesn't feel as hot as as predator 2 does I absolutely agree. And you know what? I think we're going to finish this next week because I got a whole lot more I wanted to talk about. So I think we're going to do best sequels part two. Cecil, all these sequel ones get sequels. Isn't that weird? Uh, it makes sense. Because I want to go over some of the ones that are considered the best that maybe we don't agree with. Like there are some on these lists that I found where I'm like, no, you're, you're absolutely crazy. And <laughs> with, with this, this new year coming out, 2017, we've got an, a, another sequel 
to Alien coming out, technically a sequel to Prometheus, which I'm not holding out a lot of hope for. I mean, it stars Danny McBride McBride. and James Franco in an Alien movie. I don't have a whole lot of hope for Alien Alien Covenant. And we've got Blade Runner 2049, which I am praying that is the top of my don't you dare f*** this up list. I'm optimistic about that one. You know what? I I think uh, when it comes to, and I'm just going to base this on Mr. Ryan Gosling, who has been very picky with the films he has been appearing in as of the last uh, seven to eight years or so. And I think uh, when he makes the choice to be in a movie like this, it's, in my opinion, it's it's usually bound to be pretty good unless it's the every now and then when he'll do an Oscar bait flick or like the uh, that musical thing he was in that pile of shit that I'm probably not going to watch and uh, whatever La La Land, La La Land, yeah, and uh, whatever. Sometimes he'll appear in something like a like a crazy stupid love, like a rom com thing. But when he does a serious movie, when he does something like Drive or Only God Forgives or Place Between the Pines, movies like this usually awesome and i'm gonna i'm gonna say due to his pickiness when it comes to sort of action-based drama-based sci-fi kind of stuff usually he makes the right choice and according to the teasers at least it looks like it's on the same level visually at least as uh the first blade runner was which it needs to be when i saw the first alien covenant trailer i went uh <laughs> when i saw the first blade runner 20, 2049 trailer i went ooh. Yeah, yeah, that one. And they're really... both from Ridley Scott. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. Blade Runner, though. I don't know. He only, he's only producing Blade Runner. It's another. Yeah, it's, he's only producing Blade it's Runner. It's the director but... of that, uh, it's that director who did, um, did Arrival, I think. And yeah. Arrival was, Arrival was pretty, pretty damn good. Yeah. But w- what I'm worried about for Alien Covenant is that it's not really a sequel to Prometheus. I mean, Numi Rapace was only on set for two weeks filming. And then this is supposed to be the sequel to her movie. And it takes place huh. 10 years after Prometheus. And I'm like, you guys really didn't want to follow up Prometheus, did you? Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. But I mean, I'm, I'm going to be optimistic about it. I enjoyed Prometheus and I, I don't hate- I enjoyed Prometheus too. I really don't hate uh, Danny McBride as much as you do. I actually quite quite like him. Like I, I think he works as because uh, it looks like he's just playing like a space trucker kind of character. He works as that kind of working class curly mullet sort of character. He kind of plays that in uh, Eastbound and Down, and he works uh, in the confines of the type of character that he's playing. It's very much in the same tone as the uh, the types of people that were the crew of the Nostromo in the first Alien movie. Just these kind of uh, working class kind of beer belly scruffy looking dudes i think um who's scruffy looking (laughs) danny mcbride (laughs) all right on that note cecil where can we find you before we sequel this next week uh you can find me at escapistmagazine.com goodbadflicks.com as well as uh goodbadflicks on twitter and facebook peter where can we find you you can find me getting drunk tonight on Twitter at Cinematica, on Facebook, The Cinemasochist, on YouTube, The Cinemasochist, and on 1201beyond.com. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. <laughs>
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.